Hello and welcome back to the Film Brain Podcast. It's been a long while, I know, but you might have noticed that a certain thing happened which meant that there weren't a lot of big films to actually talk about, which is, you know, kind of a problem when you do a podcast talking about big movie releases. But there has been one now, and that is Wonder Woman 1984. And I know this is a little bit delayed, but it was a bit of a kerfuffle with the release date. It technically came out in the UK first, but most of the cinemas weren't open, and then we had to wait for it to go onto VOD. It's a faff. Luckily, though, I have someone else here to talk about it with me. Hello. How are you doing there? Are you doing okay, Stu? I'm not bad, thank you. I mean, I spent two and a half hours <laughs> watching Wonder Woman 84, so, you know, we'll get onto that in a minute, but otherwise things are as good as they can be. Well, that's good. That is very good indeed. I will start off with trying to give a plot synopsis to Wonder Woman 84. This might be a little bit long-winded. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've got my pillow here. Uh, wake us when you're done. Yeah. <laughs> So, it's 1984, naturally, and Diana, played by Gal Gadot, is working in the Smithsonian Museum whilst also still retaining her secret Wonder Woman identity. She befriends a co-worker, Barbara, played by Kristen Wiig, while at the same time the Smithsonian gets a delivery from the FBI of a load of secret relics, including the Dreamstone, which can grant a user one wish. Diana uses the Dreamstone to wish back Steve Trevor, played by Chris Pine, who she's still mourning over nearly 70 years after his death, and Barbara wishes that she was more like Diana. But also in the mix is Maxwell Lord, played by Pedro Pascal, an aspiring oil baron and con man who wants to steal the Dreamstone for himself to try and make himself successful. But, as it turns out, wishes have a cost. I think that was the most succinct way of actually yang the plot across. <laughs> I genuinely impressed you managed to get the main story beats in there. It's a little bit convoluted, isn't it? Just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Before we get into the opinions on the sequel, what was your opinions on the first Wonder Woman movie? Overall, I liked it. I really liked sort of the first two acts. The third act and the final fight was a bit... Uh, it was one of those things where it's a superhero film. I think we've got to have a big fight, even if that big fight is inexplicably just against Professor Lupin wearing some scrap metal. Yeah, that kind of weakened it for me, but overall, one of the better DC films. Well, that's damning it with faint praise, isn't it? Let's just say, <laughs> overall, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. That seems to be the general reception. That was definitely my thoughts on it at the time, is that I thought it was actually surprisingly decent. I think a lot of the responses to the first Wonder Woman was just thankful that it wasn't a Zack Snyder movie. Yeah. But yeah, generally the consensus is that first two acts are really good, and then the third act kind of falls apart and Patty Jenkins has since acknowledged that yes, that was a studio note. The studio was asking for a big CGI fight scene and uh, yep, they got it. Yeah. It made the movie worse. Yeah, generally I liked Wonder Woman quite a lot, especially because it broke through that glass ceiling of women's superheroes, because up until that point there wasn't actually a successful one of those. I mean, obviously there have been attempts in the past, things like Supergirl and Catwoman and Elektra, all of which are terrible movies, but Hollywood basically took us, women's superheroes don't work. No, the message is those were terrible films, make better movies and they'll be successful. And indeed that is what happened, pretty much. Pretty much. 
there was also the fact that Marvel hadn't actually done that for themselves, which, you know, they'd been around for quite a long time by that point. It was a bit of an own goal that DC had managed to do that so early. That's a good point, because it was, what, a good year, two years before Captain Marvel? Yeah, it was two years before Captain Marvel. Considering how many characters they'd built up by that stage, that... Hmm. And technically, DC has still got the win on Marvel at the minute, because if you count Birds of Prey, considering that Harley Quinn is the protagonist, this marks the third DC film led by a woman, whereas Marvel technically only has one because Black Widow keeps being pushed back. <laughs> yes, that's true, actually, yeah. Oh, not to mention that Eternals is directed by a woman and also keeps getting pushed back, so... Oh, I'd forgotten that exists. There's Angelina Jolie in it? Yeah, that's all I can remember about it now. You know, I've stopped thinking about things that have been filmed and are meant to come out unless I know they're going to come out in the next several weeks. <laughs> Can't put my hopes too far ahead. <laughs> yeah, basically, until it's actually watchable and it's on your television, don't count your chickens. Yeah, I feel like that was the same way with Wonder Woman 1984 in the way that it kept constantly being pushed back over the course of the year. Technically, this has been in the can for a really long time. I didn't know. How long has it been completed? They filmed this back in 2018. It was scheduled initially for a Christmas 2019 date. Whoa. They did pickups in the summer of 2019, but then they bumped it to a summer 2020 date because they thought that would be more lucrative. And there was a period of time where that thought made sense. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, didn't quite play out like that, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Then it got bumped to October, and then it got bumped to Christmas, and they kept being adamant of, no, it's going to be released in cinemas, and then they finally did the HBO Max thing, and we finally have it. I don't think it was really worth the wait. I'm going to say now, because this movie has been out for quite a while, for most people, I think they've seen it, so I think we're safe to just spoil the hell out of this, because there's a lot to talk about with regards to a lot of the plot. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. So, Stu, what was your opinion of Wonder Woman 1984? Loved it. It's really short, lean, exciting, made perfect. Ah, oh, my God, I can't even... My tongue just nearly went through my cheek. And, you know, it's, it's not a good time to be getting medical treatment. This was such a weird, overly long, confusing mess. I don't understand how you can get a superhero film that's going to be aimed primarily still at a young audience and just kind of tie itself in really confusing knots with a very very strange plot and other weird choices we'll get onto. You said it right here. It is a mess. It is a big old mess. This is the kind of movie where it feels like they had several scripts for it, dropped them all on the floor, picked them up together and filmed them in that order. I could believe that. I could actually believe that. <laughs> This has all the hallmarks of a movie that was rushed from development all the way to post-production. Like, every bit of it screams rushing through this. The fact that they literally were filming this a year after the original, especially. Like, 2017 Wonder Woman comes out. 2018, they're already filming the sequel. This looks like they were trying to make this as quickly as possible, and I have absolutely no idea why they decided to do it that way, because this needed loads of rewrites. Dozens of 
of them to try and make it into a coherent script. All the way while watching, I was thinking, if I was given this script for script notes, there's such obvious things you would be pointing out. Yes. It's got to be death by committee in some way where there's just too many people for anyone to focus on something because there's such obvious flaws and problems with it. It's bizarre how many issues there are just in terms of even general story structure. I was slightly more positive on Wonder Woman 1984 than you were, Stuart. <laughs> but I think that's because I understand what the film is trying to do. On a thematic level, there's a lot of things that I actually quite like here and what it's trying to say. The problem is that the way that it's executed is just absolutely bewildering. It just doesn't succeed in coming through with any of that. It ends up with a sort of very odd message to it, ultimately, I think. But I mean, we'll get onto that later. But... Yeah. It's actually kind of strange watching it because it feels like the kind of movie that wasn't made by the original creative team. But it was! <laughs> like, Paddy Jenkins is back. Virtually everyone from Wonder Woman is back in one way or another to its detriment. <laughs> yeah. And yet, it feels like a very different movie with so many problems that weren't there the first time and the problems that were in the original are exacerbated tenfold. I mean, it's actually one of those movies where I genuinely can't figure out how to untie this knot first because talking about one thing will bring up a million other things that are problems. <laughs> <laughs> This is exactly right. So I've got my notes I wrote during the film, mm. and I, usually I would put them in some sort of order. I haven't, because I can't order it, because it's all like this absolute knotted, circuitous pretzel of everything feeding into everything else's problems, really. Oh, it's such an odd one, man. Such an odd one. What is really baffling about the way the storytelling in Wonder Woman 1984, so many people that have commented on the movie have ended up getting knotted in the plotting themselves. There are so many details being thrown on screen that people aren't actually managing to register them. And I think, I mean, again, we'll get onto this in a minute, I suppose. It's hard to structure, isn't it? But there are certain parts, sort of major drivers of the story, which just don't seem to be explained at all and just sort of confusing. I mean, a good example of this is apparently Red Letter Media have had to add a second video because they were getting plot points wrong. <laughs> oh my God! I've heard they've watched a few films in their time as well, you know? Bloody hell. It's saying something when well-established critics on the internet are having problems digesting the movie, let alone the average viewer. Is some of that down to the fact it's quite hard to maintain focus on some of it because it gets so meandering and odd, you know? It is a very, very long movie. It is so long that I think I actually paused it at several points to get up to use the loo and various other things, and so it felt like the movie went on for about 72 years. I had to pause it at several points as I was watching it with my girlfriend and she said oh stop it sorry I, I must have missed something in the plot why is this doing this and I'm like no 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 you haven't missed it it wasn't in the film there's no explanation we give so what like yeah I don't know either so I thought it was odd so I haven't left the room yet I felt like I'd missed something I'm like yeah this is seriously not your problem you know <laughs> oh dear but uh, yeah we'll get on to that at the relevant parts <laughs> I think the best way to start is literally with the start of the movie, with the sequence on Themyscira with young Diana in some sort of Colosseum event. Yeah, like their sort of incredibly boisterous Olympic event where they go around and they're on horseback and they shoot bows and arrows, like in Brave, actually, as an example, and all sorts of jumping about and total wipeout style frippery. Yeah, which goes on for a very, very long time. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> 
<laughs> Setting a pattern for much of the rest of the film, it goes on at least two, maybe three times as long as it really should do. Yeah, absolutely. It could have been a short sequence. Basically, all you need to know is Diana as a child tries to cheat and they really come down and go, nope, no cheating. Cheating is bad. Nothing good comes of lies. You could have probably done it in five minutes. The reason this sequence exists on a narrative level is to establish this theme of truth, not cheating your way into victory. It establishes the armour that is worn by Diana at the end of the movie because that's there in the statue and also this idea of, you know, the truth is beautiful and yet it comes at the end of this very, very long sequence where most people would have probably tuned out those details. <laughs> it is just a lot of leapy acrobaty CGI and then a quick moral at the end and away we go. And otherwise is almost entirely superfluous to the rest of the movie that follows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately again, that's true. Well, if you miss the fact that there's a statue in the background with the armour on and you miss the uh, platitude at the end, then yeah, you're not going to get much out of that sequence for the rest of the film, are you? Only two things are actually set up in that sequence, which goes on for almost ten minutes. <laughs> I speculate the only reason that sequence exists is to get Robin Wright and Connie Nielsen back in the movie. Afterwards, they're not in it, obviously, because they're back in Themyscira, and obviously Diana can never go back to Themyscira. But, you know, we got to throw that in there and get them back because they were in the first movie. One of them died as well, so obviously that's our get-out-of-jail-free that's, that's true, yep. <laughs> this is going to have to be set beforehand, or we ain't getting them back. First time the sequel plays that card, not the last time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but very long and very weird chalk. And then that's followed up with another action sequence, which is Diana intervening in a robbery in a mall, which is the archetypal 80s setting. Set your movie in the 80s, gotta be in a mall at some point. I had great difficulty believing this movie was set in the 80s because Finn Wolfhard isn't in it. <laughs> I don't think you can legally make any sort of television show or film without him in and set it in the 80s. But they did it, so hats off to him, yeah. It doesn't have a Stranger Things vibe to it, so that's slightly refreshing about its take on the 80s. That's a very good point, actually. That Yeah, it doesn't try and rip off Stranger Things like every bloody thing else has been doing recently. You know? It's somewhat sad to say that this opening sequence in the mall is actually the best action sequence in the movie. Absolutely. By a fairly long chalk, I'd have said. At least it's relatively clearly staged, actually quite colourful, feels like it's set in the 80s, reintroduces us to Diana properly, probably could have been the opening sequence of the movie without really losing anything. Yeah, and you would have gained a much more exciting opening. In the grand scheme of things, again, doesn't really serve too much of a plot purpose because I think the Dreamstone is peripherally related to what's going on, but very vaguely. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's there, basically, but yeah. Something I really liked about this scene is that they did. You've got a set of horrible burglars robber types and they're all all proper assholes and this kind of thing but then one of them panics doesn't want to go back to prison and takes a very small child like six years old or something hostage this young girl and the other robbers are really genuinely quite horrified by it they've got a line you know they'll go and they'll threaten people and they'll shoot guns in the air and they'll threaten but they won't sort of hurt a child and this one doing it kind of throws them and you see them looking genuinely upset and panicked by it and I thought that's a really nice little touch because you've just given some depth 
to some very minor characters in a really quick and satisfying way. Yeah. More of that in films, please, people. As many people have noted about Wonder Woman 1984, there is a very obvious influence from the Christopher Reeve, Richard Donner Superman movies, and that's most clearly apparent in the reintroduction to Diana, which feels like a sequence out of one of those movies. And I mean that in a positive way. I like the sort of sunny optimism of the Donner Superman movies. I will say, to 84's credit, the fact that it is that kind of earnest, that it's not afraid to be a little bit goofy and sincere, I would rank that as being a positive overall. I wish it had that energy more consistently and applied that to its message, but (laughs) in the initial (laughs) early going, that is actually something that I would praise about it. And occasionally you still see flashes of it later on in the movie, like the sequence where Diana's flying through the clouds especially. I mean, that one's pretty obvious, but there's some parallels that you could see, like the sequence where she's reunited with Steve later. We'll talk about that in more detail, but that reminded me of bits of Superman 2, you know, the sort of Lois and Clark dynamic there, and obviously that is what Patty Jenkins is trying to do, but doesn't really accomplish here. This opening sequence should be an hors d'oeuvre to the rest of the movie, and instead it's an encapsulation of what it should have been. Yeah, absolutely. You've got this, as you say, very Superman-y vibe in that basically what Diana's been doing is kind of a Superman job. She's been looking out for trouble and then leaping in and solving it with heroics, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially when it's nicely staged, you know. The only detail that annoyed me in it was a very fleeting one where she takes out the security cameras. Oh yes, with her tiara thing, yeah. Yes, because apparently she's still trying to be secretive with the Wonder Woman persona, which is... (sighs) Why? The, The fact that she has no mask doesn't help that, you know? I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's 1984, people have cameras. That's exactly it. Plus, you can smash these analogue security cameras on the CCTV, but they've still been recording it onto videotape, probably. Yes. And people will have seen your face beforehand. I'd imagine the only reason that's there is to keep some semblance of continuity with how she was portrayed in Justice League as some kind of weird hermit. Oh, yes. Yeah, because nobody host. Yeah, is she with you? I thought she was with you. Yeah, she's just totally unheard of, isn't she? So Yeah, she's completely unheard of and apparently has not intervened since World War One. That's something that the sequel kind of skirts over. Didn't really make much of an effort during World War Two, did you, Diana? <laughs> I kept thinking to myself, because obviously Wonder Woman 1 is set in World War 1, I kept thinking, was it set in World War 2? Because it seems to have just gone over that. Have I somehow misremembered when Wonder Woman 1 was set? It was set in the First World War. Yeah, yeah no, I absolutely hadn't, because I actually checked afterward. It did seem weird how it had kind of just skirted that. Maybe she wore a special hat that nobody recognised during World War 2 or something. The only acknowledgement of a passing of time, aside from obviously the setting, is a couple of photos on Diana's mantelpiece and that's about it? Like, what what has she been doing? The movie never really comes up with an answer. You've had 40 years. What have you been up to? Sitting in an office and cataloguing antiquities. And literally, Diana's character has been apparently static since the end of Wonder Woman. Yet she's been pining for Chris Pine, ho ho ho, for (laughs) ever. Yes. (laughs) Literally 40. No, wait. 
50 years. No, wait, 70 years. Oh, my God. Yeah, 60, 70 years. Oh. She's been mourning for Steve Trevor. Bloody hell. I mean, I get it. People are not moaning about this because they're not comprehending the concept of grief, but that's a lifetime. Diana has literally spent a lifetime being miserable and isolating herself. It doesn't seem like she's a particularly gregarious person at the Smithsonian. No, no, absolutely. She doesn't seem like she interacts with anyone, doesn't seem to talk to anyone, leaves this exceptionally lonely existence. That's very odd, especially considering that her characterization in the first movie was so sunny and optimistic and, yeah, a little bit naive, but she seems to have lost most of that this time out, which means that Gal Gadot has very little to actually play. (laughs) This is one of those films where the main character doesn't really drive the plot a lot. There's a lot of reacting to this, that, and the other, and getting caught up in the things. It would have been nice for her to have, you know, pushed forward a bit and made things happen as a character, have a bit more engagement like that. As you say, she's got really dour since the death of old Chris Pine's Steve Trevor. I don't know, she's lost her gumption a bit. Although, we see the really cool sequence at the start where she's stopping crimes. I don't know, it just doesn't gel with itself, I don't think. And the fact that she's not this sort of powerful person in her own life means that the storyline with Kristen Wiig doesn't work from the outset. (laughs) Oh, man. That's, whoa. Are we going to get into Kristen Wiig now, or are we going to go in a bit later? Yeah, that was my segue. That was my... You see, we can't even work out which bit of the film to do first. It's such a tangled knot of gumph. So, yeah, Kristen Wiig's character. It's one of these things, they make a big point of setting her up and then just kind of forget about her. Yeah. It's really odd. I mean, it's her first day at the new job and all this stuff, which to me seemed kind of unnecessary. Wouldn't it have worked better if she'd actually been there a while? Because the whole point of her character is everybody overlooks her and thinks she's a twit and all this kind of stuff. Exactly the same thought. This really would work better, first of all, if she was established as being there for quite some time. And secondly, if she actually had a long-term relationship with Diana, because in the movie, she befriends her in the space of a day before she makes her wish to be her. Yes. Which makes no sense. I've just met this cool person. I wish I was them. Thank you. Bye. And it's such a heavy setup and everything moves so quickly. And then it's like, oh, well, that's probably the end of that. She can come back a couple of times. Yeah, maybe. Ostensibly, she's one of the main villains of this movie. And Cheetah, as a character is one of the big Wonder Woman villains. Mm, absolutely. And yet, it feels like she's been bolted onto the movie, and maybe she has been. I think it was the case of what they wanted to do with Pedro Pascal's Max Lord. You couldn't shoehorn a big fight into the end, because he's not that kind of character, and it would have ended up feeling like the fight at the end of Wonder Woman 1. Maybe they were trying to avoid that, but then you end up with this thing that just doesn't really work, does it? No, and also, because Diana is not much of a roaring personality. You just wonder where Barbara's got that from. Just, yeah. She goes to lunch with her and she spends most of it talking about her dead boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Diana. You've really cheered me up. Tell me again how your boyfriend died. Brilliant. I mean, her arc is kind of... So she's joining the museum and everyone thinks she's a twit and nobody remembers who she is she wishes using the wishing stone accidentally of course because she doesn't know it's a wishing stone then to be like Diana which obviously gives her the super strength and stuff which she doesn't realise Diana has so that becomes a surprise to her which furthermore doesn't make any sense because if she doesn't know that she has powers why would she wish to be her? The stone knows (laughs) yes (laughs) it's all very odd and she also gets some sort of massive boost of 
of um, confidence. Confidence. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, big old confidence boost from it as well. And suddenly everybody's engaged by her and fancies her and thinks she's great and all that. And she's superhumanly strong. Blah blah blah. But it's got the old monkey's paw thing, which they reference several times in the film, mm. where each wish has like a negative consequence. Although it's a little bit airy fairy as to how that works and what some of those are. Her thing is she kind of loses her humanity. She was quite a caring person beforehand, and then she doesn't give a shit as she gets some strength. But that kind of felt like more like a personality flaw of hers than a negative consequence of the magic wish, really. Again, I kind of understand what they were trying to do with that, but it doesn't really land. I mean, it's odd because this arc with Chisa is the most straightforward in the movie. It's literally things that we've seen in other comic book movies, not necessarily good ones. I mean, it's very similar to Electro's origin in Amazing Spider-Man 2, notably. At least this film's better than that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This is a fairly straightforward arc, and yet the movie doesn't actually know how to implement it properly, which is so weird. Like, even the most straightforward of the story beats, it doesn't know how to do. And I don't understand how that's happened. Here's the thing. The Dreamstone, it gives her lots and lots of male attention, which is a very odd way of going about it to begin with. Mm. I wouldn't say very feminist-themed way of going about it. (laughs) She suddenly is very attractive and gets objectified by every man she meets. Okay. Good. Brilliant. Just what she wanted from her wish, I'm sure. Yes. But also, so even before she makes the wish, there's a bit where she goes through the part, again, to show her caring personality. She gives food to a homeless person and then she gets attacked by a man in the park and Diana comes to her rescue and I thought that scene was very weird. That was the first scene where I went, something's very wrong with this movie. Barbara's struggling with this guy and Diana shows up out of completely nowhere Mm. in a space of a cut, fends the guy off, offers self-defense classes and then just strolls off. (laughs) Just strolls off after a friend was assaulted. Yeah, literally just leaves her there. Just wants Oh, anyway, that's that then. Bye. What the... And how does she appear there? How does she know? Has she got some sort of Superman sense thing going on that hasn't been established? I have no idea. Yeah, has she been stalking Barbara since they left? Like, oh my it god. It doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> I think that's the only answer. <laughs> Oh my god, I hadn't thought of that. Well, that's... Ugh. Pops in to help her and then just trundles off like, no one would act like that. That's such a bizarre scripting decision. Like, why have her just walk off like that? I mean, I know that she can't be around for the scene where Barbara uses the Dreamstone, but just have her take her to the Smithsonian and then walk off. The great thing is with... and. I, I mean the absolute opposite of great sorry I was being very sarcastic there about um, the arc of the cheetah so you get this build up exactly as we've described obviously oh and then she's getting all the attention oh she's strong and then you see her being overly vicious and it's like oh well you know she's losing her humanity or something that's pretty much it she then buggers off turns up for a fight later and then apparently off camera transforms into one of the jellical cats and comes back at the end for another big fight it's so rushed and badly structured Barbara's heel turn is that the guy that tries to attack her in the park shows up again and then she retaliates against him in a really vicious way and the movie presents this as a bad thing even though (laughs) in most other movies a similar situation like this is normally depicted as an empowering moment I mean admittedly she goes too far but even so it's very weird coding here because you don't care about that guy he's an absolute piece of shit he's a horrifying drunkard who attempts to molest women constantly and as 
possibly been successful. We don't know. Yeah. You don't think, oh, she's hit him a bit hard. This is like a bloody superhero film with all magic and things floating about. Bloody good job he got his ass kicked, you know. It's very weird. It expects the audience to go, oh, that's bad. And especially the women in the audience, seeing that first sequence and then seeing the second one, what are they meant to think about that? It's such a weird decision. And then Cheetah's heel turn doesn't even happen until the end of the second act. Yeah, and you've had all this time and she's barely on screen anymore, really. She literally just turns up for a couple of fights. She was a big focus of the film's marketing campaign when really she's a side character in the movie. Purely in there so they can have a big CGI fight at the end. Yes. It really is that simple, isn't it? Cheetah spends more time in this movie as a sidekick to Diana than she actually has as a villain. And then she goes off and is briefly a sidekick to Max Lord. (laughs) And now I'm really empowered. I don't need you anymore, Diana. I'll be a sidekick to this other person instead. (laughs) Raise your sights a bit. Maybe you could do your own thing. Imagine that. Yeah, Yeah, they have the confrontation in the White House and again, we'll get to that bit later because there's a lot of problems with that. (laughs) Fucking hell, yeah, yeah. Hmm. But then she goes to Maxwell Lord and goes, I want to be an apex predator. I don't want to be Diana anymore. And then she's normal for a little bit. And then just shows up a full cheetah. Like, no transformation. Nothing. Yeah. One scene she was normal. Next, she's completely transformed. Like, what? Yeah, she's literally one of the Jellicle cats. I have cats. And no transformation is shown, as you said. Which is such a weird thing, because even if it's a quick thing, that's the pivotal point of the characters. You see them going, and turning it physically into what they're becoming as a character. No, happens off camera. She just turns up, looks like a weird cat in silhouette, and Diana immediately recognises her somehow. Did you pick up on this very weird detail the first time that Cheetah and Diana meet back at the Smithsonian because Diana's wearing cheetah print shoes? Cheetah print shoes, (laughs) yeah. That was their (laughs) foreshadowing. And they're ridiculously ugly bit Lynch shoes that Diana wouldn't be wearing anyway. (laughs) It's just so odd. She may as well have just turned up in an old Ford Capri with a and sprint seats or something. But yeah, once she turns into the cheetah, you can clearly tell that the filmmakers were like, yeah, we're gonna have this on screen for the minimum amount of time possible. No clear shots of it. Even when it's in a medium shot, it's so dark you can hardly see it. It doesn't look very good to begin with. The close-ups are weak because her face is on. It's just kind of Kristen Wiig with some very simple makeup on that doesn't really look like a cat. It's, It's really odd, actually. It does look very odd. It's so obvious that they're not trying to give you any clear shots of it whatsoever. Like, they're embarrassed of it. And it registers. <laughs> like, I felt embarrassed. <laughs> Especially because it pops up out of nowhere. Tell you something else that popped up out of nowhere. I really hope I missed something, but I don't think I did. <laughs> At the end of the climactic super CGI fight of Wonder Woman versus Rum Tum Tugger or whatever, she's got her under the water mm. and she deliberately electrocutes them because Wonder Woman is immune to electricity? Is that a thing? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) It wasn't established, was it, in the first film or this? Because she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to do this to you, Barbara Cheetah person, and electrocutes them, and it's like, and then obviously Cheetah is incapacitated by it, but she's fine. You're like, well, why? How? You kind of need to have established this at some point. That seems like a very quick note of they were originally going to kill her off, and then they just kind of backed out of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a possibility. 
G.I. Joe the movie all over again. Even though that character has technically been a cheater for approximately two minutes of screen time and may never be able to be again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's entirely true, yeah. You could say, well, all right, Diana's super, so she's immune to electricity and the cheater isn't. But in that case, how come the cheater's as fast and resilient and as strong or even stronger? It doesn't make any sense to me why Wonder Woman is immune and she isn't. You, you could have probably done that with a line of dialogue or something, but there's nothing in there. Editor Matthew here cutting into the podcast to say that apparently Wonder Woman does actually have some immunity to electricity, or at least according to the sources that I read, although apparently it doesn't actually come from the gods. Apparently in classic comic book lore there is an issue where she fought against Dr. Psycho who tried to fry her in an electro-atomizer but inadvertently made her resilient to electricity, so apparently that's where that power comes from? I don't know if that's movie can or not, but I'll leave that for you to decide. Anyway, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. It's so awkwardly staged. I mean, a lot of that sequence is very awkwardly staged. I mean, the fact that you have two combatants who both arrive wearing alternate costumes that they didn't have in their previous scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Here's something else I, I couldn't get, right? I felt like this is, I don't know, a re-edit or a rewrite or something. It just doesn't hold together. Hmm. When Diana's got these big wings on her armoured suit that she uses to protect herself from the cheetah and previously like a big hero of the um, Amazons had like protected themselves from the whole world with it and you see thousands of people going against them but Cheetah can actually rip it open which is why you know obviously oh she's so powerful you know but then there's this weird scene of I describe it like Wonder Woman shrugs off the wings Mm. but then the camera zooms out and there's all this impressive music like oh she's done something amazing oh she's got her mojo back or something like but that didn't happen she'd already got her mojo back in a previous scene I don't understand what that is why did they make that out to be a big thing that she was throwing away some of her armour. Uh, <laughs> I guess the shot looked really cool. <laughs> yes, it did. I mean, I was more puzzled that she showed up with it in the first place because they obviously have the setup and then they have the reminder because it's in her closet. Oh, yeah, in a slightly clunky fashion. Yeah. Gee, what's this armour over here? Oh, that's my super armour. Oh, thank you. Continue scene, you know. But then she just magically has it at the payoff. It's it. Like, <laughs> she just suddenly shows up with it, it's... even though we've shown her flying over in her regular costume. It's so weird. It's like the whole bunch of scenes were missing, even though they weren't. There's a lot of the film like that. And it's so long. Why is it like that? No, I'm not, I'm not going to start thinking like that, because <laughs> they're in madness lies, Craig. Oh, man. So, shall we get on to Maxwell Lord? I guess we can talk about Maxwell Lord if we're talking about the villains. So, flavour of the month, Pedro Pascal as Maxwell Lord, who actually, I quite like his performance in this. I think he's kind of great, isn't he? He really is. He chews the scenery in exactly the right amount, in exactly the right way. He's chewing the scenery, but he's also strangely touching at the same time. It's a really nice performance, actually. Probably the... mm, I wouldn't have said it's my favourite thing about the film. That's probably the action sequence at the start, actually. (laughs) And because of how meandering and odd his arc is, yeah, it's harder to say. But interesting character. I wish they could have done more with it. No, I'd not done more. Just done something with it that made more sense. Let's go for that. Yes. Something more coherent, I think, is probably the best way of describing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think Maxwell Lord embodies, I think, one of the big weights on this sequel in that it feels like it has to be a response to the sort of culture and politics of the 80s, but also responding to our current political cycle because obviously Maxwell Lord is very obviously meant to be a Trump commentary. Very plainly stated the way that he's flashing around his riches even though his businesses are falling apart and things like that. He's promoting the idea of himself as being this great businessman 
happen and it's all kind of this facade and in fact all he really does is go on television and project an image and a brand and yeah it's not subtle about it put it that way it's very explicit these days (laughs) as is many of the direct political commentaries in the movie again to its detriment even though he is meant to be a Trump caricature the movie I think still has empathy for him which I think is at least one of the areas that is carried over from the first movie I think that the way that it views Maxwell Lord with I guess sympathy to a certain extent because it could have been very easy to just make this a one note Trump caricature and just have that as your villain but instead they've actually given him more than that but in a way which feels awkward given the characterization which seems to fluctuate and shift from scene to scene this is the thing isn't it I mean I did really like the fact they tried to flesh it out and have him be a proper character and not just oh he's some corporate arsehole he's not just John Lithgow from Santa Claus the movie yeah. you know he's got something more to him but as you say he does feel like a different character between bloody scenes it's all very odd it's particularly true whenever they have to push out his son Alistair on the screen yeah his son who he loves and seems to be mostly motivated by well early on he seems to be mostly motivated by making the son proud but then they kind of have this flashback sequence that kind of undoes that bit but he genuinely loves his son doesn't always treat him that great but the son is incredibly important to him yes which comes into play in the ending but you would think given that element they would make that more prominent and instead the son kind of pops up sporadically through the movie and in the middle act only pops up once I think it's a disease he had and Kristen Wiig caught it because the same thing happened to her character yes so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no I've caught the disease that makes me appear in the film only when absolutely needed for a scene it's unfortunate because that sort of father-son dynamic is obviously meant to be key to the character it's meant to be driving him and yet the movie forgets that thread like it forgets so many threads throughout the running time I've got to pick out a particular early Maxwell Lord moment because it's so goddamn weird right he gets the wishing stone manages basically to steal it from Barbara because it's in her office Mm. and he puts it on his desk and immediately wishes he was the stone (laughs) now at this point I just looked away from the television at my girlfriend who had already turned towards me and was like what? could you not have worded that a bit more carefully mate? especially because it's a stone made by an evil god that has deliberately bad consequences to the wishes you could have just turned into a rock and the film would have been over you bloody idiot but of course it, it worked perfectly blah 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 but what a stupid scene what a stupid piece of dialogue I couldn't believe they left that in just a few tweaks and that would have made sense you know that's a line of dialogue that says we need this plot mechanism to happen <laughs> yeah and we need it to happen really quickly because apparently the film's got to be short because that didn't happen <laughs> that was such a what the fuck moment you know he wishes he'd become the stone so that he basically becomes a genie kind of yeah like he can grant people's wishes this leads into one of the massive flaws of the film I mean I know we haven't touched any of those yet <laughs> but uh, he gets ill when he grants wishes yes he starts holding his temple quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, and then he looks ill and has to, and basically his body's collapsing. We don't know why. That's never brought up. And also there's this weird thing of everybody only gets one wish, but when he grants a wish for somebody he gets to grant a wish himself. None of this is brought up. None of it whatsoever. So you're trying to work out if those are the rules or not. And you're like, well why hasn't this been done? Then two hours into the film Kristen Wiig's character briefly says oh yeah, because everybody only gets one wish or something. And you're like, why wasn't that meant 
mentioned before. Why have we been sitting here having to try and piece that together from the weird crap that's going on? Why is he getting ill? There's an old fairy tale, could be a Brothers Grimm thing actually, I forget, called The Wishing Skin. And it's about somebody who finds this skin that's made of wishes and will grant your wishes. And the first thing he does is wishes it sticks to him and becomes part of him Hmm. so that nobody else can use it or take it off him. But then every time he uses a wish, it gets smaller because it's made of wishes. So he gets smaller as well. And he starts shrinking basically every time he makes a wish. It's kind of like that, except they never establish it. The thing about him becoming sort of diseased from The Rock, it would make more sense if, I don't know, The Rock kind of chipped away if people made wishes or something like that. Or at least, you know, had some kind of internal continuity. But instead, it's like they couldn't figure out a bad thing to happen because he wished that he was the genie, essentially. (laughs) This is probably my main problem with the film, because Maxwell Lord is a massive character in it. It's almost like he's the main character of the film, other than Wonder Woman. He certainly drives more of the narrative. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's almost like Max Lord, the movie, you know. But what is he trying to do? What is his plan? Something, something, be successful? (laughs) He's going off and desperately trying to enact this plan that you don't know what the plan is and you don't understand how he's going about it. He eventually has to touch as many people as possible to get more wishes for himself or something. But why is that a thing? So here is Maxwell Lord's plan as I comprehend it. Okay. He wants to find the Dreamstone because he thinks that's going to cure his financial problems because he's set up an oil company but basically all all the oil sites that he owns are completely useless and worthless and he's probably about to go to jail for financial fraud so he thinks that's going to solve his problems then he realises that because he can grant wishes he can become sick meanwhile he decides to jaunt over to Egypt because for some reason he needs to take over the oil in Egypt even though when he became the bloody thing all the sites that he had all became active and they all became very valuable overnight so I don't know why he's going to Egypt, but that happens. They literally say that he now controls over 50% of the world's oil. Yes. And he's still jealous of the man he saw on the front of the magazine. Yes. Especially because he gets there and it turns out the uh, guy in the magazine sold on his oil anyway. It's all completely pointless. (laughs) That Egypt storyline, we'll get to that. That's another note. (laughs) So there's that, but of course it's making him sick, and then Max nurses that the world is getting worse, so he goes to the president and finds out that the president has some sort of scheme that can transmit around the world on every single device using satellites because something something technology and then Maxwell Lord manages to convince him to do that and then he's going to take over the broadcast and have people make wishes because he thinks that will make him better even though people making wishes made it doesn't make any sense whatsoever what the hell is this? They have this thing where it's like, you always want more. It's all, You've always got to have more. So that seems to be his motivation, just more. But not in a way that makes any sense. Oh, I've got an amazing thing. I can literally have any wish granted. There we are. I've done it. And I've done it in a way where I can have more wishes. Oh, but that's not enough. I've got to have more. I've got to have more wishes. All the wishes. But why? What are you going to it? Oh, it's, it's just a metaphor for greed. So I've just got to have more. <laughs> Imagine if you had a James Bond villain where you didn't know what he had to do. Bond, you must go and stop this villain. What's he doing? We haven't got a fucking clue. <laughs> He's just doing weird stuff. Like, go and stop him. What? Oh, it's just such a problem that arguably the biggest character in the bloody film, because he overshadows Wonder Woman, you don't know what he's doing or why he's doing it. No, there's no clear sense of objective to anything that Maxwell Lord does, aside from maybe the first act. After that point,
point. Who knows what he's actually trying to do at any given moment? Who knows what's actually motivating him? <laughs> Aside from the plot needs to get him here. You're absolutely right, actually. He makes perfect sense up until the end of Act 1. He wants to get the stone, then he wants to use the stone to get so-and-so. As soon as he's done that, it's just like, right, time to ride the crazy train! <laughs> what? I don't know, it's fun, isn't it? You know? Like, at no point did they stop for a second and map out what is his arc? What is he trying to achieve? If his goal was to make his son proud of him, which it seems to be at some points, you know, maybe this might actually make slightly more sense. Like, how does the stuff with the broadcast at the end in any way relate to what's going... <sighs> also, right, imagine you've written the script for Wonder Woman 1984. You hand it to me for notes, and you're like, right, what do you think of this bit? Basically, he's got it so the American president's given him absolute control over everything, and they're using these special particle satellites to take over every screen in the world, and because they're particles, that means he gets to touch everyone in the world, kind of, and that means he gets to grant their wishes because it has to be done by touch, blah, blah, blah. Why are you going through all this convoluted techno shit when he's a magic rock that grants wishes? <laughs> all he had to do was wish! What's all this piss about? The rules of the stone are so badly established, inconsistent, change from scene to scene. Like, it's Kristen Wiig's character says, of course, you can only have one wish. The moment next year, she's had a second one and turned into a bloody cat. Like, <laughs> she literally just said you could only have one wish and now apparently she's had two? Did she renounce the first one? Nothing is explained! I mean, I guess she did technically renounce the first one on the helicopter when she says, I don't want to be Diana anymore. I guess technically renouncing? Yeah. Technically? If we're really stretching? But I think literally in the next live dialogue, I think he says something along the lines of, I am the stone so I can grant you another one anyway. <laughs> That's exactly what I was about to say because his next line of dialogue is something like, well, I'll be generous. You know, everyone only gets one, but I'll be generous for you or something like that. Hang on, so he now controls it? What the fuck is going on? That's oh. not how this works. The movie has literally established this where he's talking to people and he's trying to get them to do the wish that he wants, but he has to try and coax them into saying it because they can only do the one wish. Like, you can't violate your own internal logic like that. And immediately after you would finally establish it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Deep breaths. We've got more to go through. <laughs> but while we're on the subject of Maxwell Lord, I suppose we might as well talk about the film's massively misguided Egypt subplot. Oh my goodness. This feels like it was made in the 80s, some of it at least, especially the imagery. This has been widely critiqued for obvious reasons. It was particularly critiqued in Slate. Roxana Haddadi's article, Wonder Woman's Middle Eastern stereotype should have stayed in the 1980s, which draws comparisons to the Indiana Jones films, specifically Temple of Doom, and how in trying to replicate the feel of the old serials, they also ended up uh, incorporating some of their racism as well. Yeah, Wonder Woman 1984's problems also stem from the fact that it's homaging stuff from the 80s, but also bringing back stuff that we'd rather have left behind in the 80s. <laughs> yes, I think that puts it very nicely. So the movie obviously wants to be a political commentary, and obviously is trying to look at the world, but then it has this incredibly backwards geopolitics when it comes to the Middle Eastern view of the world. That Slate article goes extensively into just how wrong it is, especially with the representation of people from Egypt, which is much closer to people from Saudi Arabia. Was that what they originally wrote in the script, and then they just changed it to Egypt? So this whole sequence is completely unnecessary in the grand scheme of things, because Maxwell Lord, he wants to buy this guy's oil reserves, but he's already sold it off to the Saudis. It turns out there's no reason for him to actually go there in the first place, but he grants the guy's wish anyway, and he wishes that 
Egypt was divided by a great big wall. Boy, that's subtle. I wonder what they're commentating on there. It's so subtle, I'm going to have to speak to a professor of history to explain it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I get it. We're not saying it's bad that Wonder Woman 1984 is explicitly political and commentating on the world. In fact, far be it, that's exactly the movie that I want. Mm. The problem is that it's saying it in the most clumsy, reckless way possible, especially when it's in relation to everything to do with this subplot. I forgot to mention the bit where Steve and Diana go into the Smithsonian and steal a jet yep. to go to Egypt. Because apparently World War One pilots can pilot jet planes. That are fully fueled. And then Wonder Woman turns it invisible in a nod to the old invisible jet by casting a spell. Has she ever cast spells before? No, they never established this really in the original film. Well, I suppose technically Themyscira, so it's the same sort of idea that cloaks Themyscira, but they never established that Diana could do this, and the only establishment that she could do it right before she immediately makes a jet disappear is that she tried it on a coffee cup once and yeah and, and then, then couldn't find forgot the where cup. it was <laughs> yeah which is a nice gag but i mean it doesn't help the setup you know i have got to say of course as weird as that invisible jet scene is it's better than having an actual invisible jet which is one of the most ridiculous things in dc comics and always just looks crazy like comedy relief whenever used but all the same yeah they do that and then they fly over to Egypt. i mean can you get from America to Egypt on one tank of fighter plane fuel? I have no idea. I don't know about that, but what I will say, them travelling there, they take such a long time to do that. Like, they fly the jet and then they're taking a taxi ride. They never show you where they land the jet, so I'll just nope. point that out. <laughs> That's completely glossed over. Another one of those weird abrupt jump cuts in structure, which is odd, because apparently Patty Jenkins doesn't film movies with deleted scenes. Like, there's no kind of interstitial material. What? That really surprised me. I was expecting there to be like half an hour of deleted scenes on the Blu-ray or something. Yeah, it feels like a movie that has loads and loads of deleted scenes and is just edited poorly, but no, I guess it's just written and structured this badly. Oh my goodness. But yeah, they're riding in the back of a taxi, and then they suddenly realise that Maxwell has passed them, so they just dump out their driver in the middle of the desert. Oh, they do buy the taxi from him, shove a load of money at him, we're having your taxi, bye. (laughs) That's the end of that. Everything to do with this Egypt stuff is profound tone deaf and then it doesn't need to be in the movie this is it it's utterly pointless if you were to cut that out it would make no bloody difference do you know what really annoyed me right Mm. they make all this trouble and squit about how they get over there and then suddenly they're back in America really quickly yes to the point where Kristen's wig character says my god you got back fast oh yeah and to play it off as a gag you can't have us watch something for like seven minutes going through all this bloody control and then just wave it off on the other way back at least give us an explanation so unnecessary this trip in the first place like it gets the jet in the movie I will say very briefly that bit with the fireworks rare beautiful moment in this movie mm-hmm. genuinely gorgeous moment yep especially when they go above the clouds yes and you see how they've just really well done but it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie again it has no bearing on the rest of the movie it's a long cul-de-sac and if they just got rid of it it would make the movie considerably shorter the only time it's acknowledged after it happens is they keep cutting back 
to the guy that Maxwell made the deal with in shots that feel like he's in another universe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that wasn't just me. It felt like the dentist did in bits of a different film or something. Yeah, yeah really <laughs> awkward shoehorned cutaway shots. Like yeah. they suddenly remembered that character exists and probably should be in the climax in some way. I would seriously be interested if you could just get a file of this film and edit it. Could you just remove that whole sequence and then the couple of callbacks later and would it still flow exactly the same? I won't say make sense because there's other things that stop it making sense. It does seem that cut and dried. It's that pointless. The only plot relevant thing that I can think of that happens in that scene that isn't established at any other point in the movie is it's the only moment where Diana and Maxwell during the midst of that action sequence she asks for the rock back and he goes I can't I'm the rock yes that's true that's the one bit you get out of it yep and some proper confirmation that she's losing her powers yes that's the other one because she struggles with the lock earlier that's more explicitly seen in the White House sequence so again you could easily lose that oh yeah you could actually couldn't you yes because you had a bit of setup beforehand <laughs> yeah you totally could good god so if you just have a quick bit of Maxwell sending her a postcard saying I'm the rock now okay thanks bye there we are you've done it it could literally be replaced with an equivalent sequence of Maxwell visiting one of his oil sites or visiting an oil baron in the states there wouldn't be any need for this location hopping all the time spent on that if it's just there to facilitate this action sequence why couldn't it just be set anywhere why does it need to be here why do we need to engage in these politics why do we need to have these stereotypes in the movie why 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 it's another one of those why did you do it this way movie why did you pick the hard way it goes back to what you said it's like pages from another film or another version of the film very odd this whole Egypt section is about 20 minutes of the movie that doesn't need to be there and the movie is bogged down constantly by things that don't really need to be there like the two opening sequences I had to stop and pause the movie at the end of that second action sequence it was 18 minutes into the running time of a two and a half hour movie and the plot hadn't actually started yet generally the good rule of thumb is that a movie should start its plot engine in about the first 10 minutes something should have happened quite significant it doesn't have to lay out all the plot right away but you know feels like it's got started at that point but no it's about 45 minutes before even Chris Pine shows up yes I suppose we're gonna have to get onto Chris Pine Steve Trevor now aren't we yes <laughs> Steve Trevor this is a really spicy meatball <laughs> it's really so I think probably the biggest bone of contention is the way they brought Steve Trevor back obviously Steve died at the end of the first movie and that was key to Diana's character and she wishes for him to be back and you know not a terrible way of working the actor back into the movie what I will say though is that it did unintentionally remind me of Highlander 2 oh my god I'm not saying that Wonder Woman 1984 is Highlander 2 the quickening but it's exactly <laughs> the same thing as Christopher Lambert asking for Sean Connery to come back so they <laughs> invent the way for him to come back <laughs> If there's ever a film you don't want a bloody parallel with, I think Highlander 2. Ramirez! (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. Like, I understand the filmmaker's reasons for bringing Chris Pine back, because obviously him and Gal Gadot had great chemistry together, and they do in this movie. Like, there's some sweet moments between them. But once they bring him back, he's just there. Yeah. Again, a character who doesn't do a whole lot. He's only there to give some sort of emotional aspects to Diana's story and upset her at the end. They slightly work him into the action sequences, but largely he exists as a prop, both in terms of Diana's arc, because 
because he otherwise won't exist if Diana forsakes her wish. And the character is literally a prop because he's in the body of another man. They must have had a hundred script notes on this. Like, why does he have to take over another man? It's a magic rock. Just make him reappear. Yes. Again, going back to the weird rules of the rock. So the rock can make nuclear missiles appear, but it can't make Steve Trevor arrive in his own body. He has to arrive in a doppelganger. We see the actor as Chris Pine. Yes. Because it's how Wonder Woman is seeing him, basically. But it's not. It's like he's in somebody else's body and he sees somebody else's reflection. Yes. It's literally a quantum leap scenario. So, yeah. Oh, boy. Yes. Another 80 some <laughs> I assumed at that point, right. So what we're seeing here and previously from the wishes, they're all relatively subtle. You can do these major things and, you know, all the money's gone to somebody else or this, that and the other or all some oil is diverted, maybe. And, oh, do you know what? You can bring somebody back from the dead, but you can't make a body for them. They have to inhabit another body. I'm like, ah, okay, okay. Then a gigantic fucking wall appears out of nowhere. <laughs> then they're magicking nuclear missiles out of nowhere. There is no limit to the wishing stone. So why does he have to take over somebody else's body and make it weird? It's very weird on a number of levels. If I had to say anything positive about this, I like the way they cast the other guy. And I have to refer to him as the way that he's created. The, the body that uh, Stephen inhabits is credited as Handsome Man. Handsome? No way. He doesn't have a name. He's just credited. We have a character in Polybius Heist who's just Handsome Man. <laughs> we got there first. <laughs> Christopher Poloha, who is credited as Handsome Man. Bloody hell. That's amazing. But if I will give a little bit of credit, I will say that he does actually have a bit of a resemblance to Chris Pine. So I like the idea that he's not actually turned into Steve Trevor. It's just that when he confirms that that's who he is, Diana can sort of shuffle around his features to make him look like Steve Trevor. Yeah. That's kind of a cute touch. If I'm really being defensive about this. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise, what a bloody weird thing. It's just so you've got this sort of odd scene at the end where she sees him afterwards after Steve Trevor's gone. It's like, oh, there he is. Hello. That was nice, wasn't it? It's, oh, my God. I will say that Christopher Poloha sounds like an interesting guy. I read yesterday an interview with him in The Hollywood Reporter, and apparently he's a novelist on the side as well. Oh. He writes romance books. Blimey. <laughs> he's also been a Hallmark staple for quite a long time, so uh, <laughs> that's kind of funny. Hmm. Well, well cast in that case, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he barely has any lines in the movie, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's not worry about that. I mean, genuinely does barely. He just speaks a bit at the end, doesn't he? But yeah. This plot point has been singled out repeatedly as being arguably one of the biggest missteps of the entire movie, largely because it doesn't need to happen this way, as we've pointed out. <laughs> yeah. But also, it raises a scary ton of consent issues. I believe this was brought up in the Mary Sue by uh, Kayla Hale Cern. Diana and Steve, they have sex with each other. He's in another man's body. Uh, mm. Yes. That's, that's bad. And the defence I saw about this from, I think it might have been from Jenkins as well. I can't remember was, oh, but it's like the old body swap, you know, aesthetic. Oh, it's not serious. But it's not a body swap, because the other guy hasn't gone into Steve Trevor's body. The other guy's just basically dead. And he's not even aware of what's happened. He's completely unconscious of yeah. everything that's happening while Steve is using his body as a meat puppet. He's basically 
really dead until Steve is gone. And if Steve didn't go, which, I mean, you have no reason to think he is earlier on in the film, that's it. You've killed Handsome Man and puppeting his body, as you say. You know, like in bloody Men in Black, you're expecting the head to flip open. There's a tiny little Chris Pine in it, you know? It's so weird. Because obviously the filmmakers, they want to have their heart in the right place, but apparently they never considered this. You would never see this reversed with a woman, and you really shouldn't see it reversed with a man either. It's so weird and so unnecessary. I just don't get it. It's made worse by the fact the characters barely even mention it. They don't consider it for a second, which is really out of character for the both of them. That's another very good point, actually. <laughs> I think that contributes to the weird feeling of it, yes. Like, the fact there was another person would mean that there was a stake there. They would be called attention to the fact that actually it was kind of problematic to bring him back in the first place. But God. <laughs> so we end up with a thing where basically because the wishes all have bad consequences they have to be renounced you have to renounce your wish so they go away and I think Diana is kind of the first character to do it isn't she yeah she's the first one to properly do it literally says I renounce my wish while walking away from Steve and Steve says I love you and all that and then the implication is Steve is gone sort of off camera I couldn't believe the way that Chris Pine exited out of this movie like it's so ineptly staged basically hides behind a wall they're having this conversation behind a pillar and then she runs off and leaves him behind and that is pretty much Chris Pine's exit out of the movie is that the camera moves past him behind this pillar and he goes I will always love you Diana which you can vaguely hear over the soundtrack yeah. and that's it it's like there's no real closure for him in that scene he suggests leaving him behind but the emotional weight of it is so rushed Ugh, the staging of it is so embarrassing his exit in Wonder Woman was huge and in this movie it's like a shrug and again undermines the sort of whole emotional thing of Diana doesn't it because you don't feel it what were they going for there was it supposed to be like from Diana's point of view she's like no I've got to leave you and I can't be looking at you when you disappear so we follow her away and we're supposed to feel it I don't even know what they were getting at to be honest I mean I'm just totally spitballing with that it's meant to be this emotionally intense but cathartic moment because she's reclaiming her powers at the same time but it just does not land. I mean, at least with the Steve stuff, there are some funny moments where he's being reintroduced to the culture of the time, but even that is overextended. It goes on for too long. Like, the bit where he's freaking out about escalators, like, yeah. come on. <laughs> I think one review actually pointed out, like, escalators did exist while he was alive. <laughs> yeah, but he'd never seen one. It's fine. <laughs> he never left his house. He looks like he's going to have a heart attack as he's like, oh my god, it moves. Ultimately, because there's no particular emotional landing at the end and he doesn't really do a lot while he's around other than be there and help a bit. It's kind of another character that feels like it's been drawn in from another version of the script. But while we're on the subject of staging, let's talk about the action sequences, shall we? This will be quick. We've been putting that off for as long as possible. <laughs> the first one's really nice, as we said. The other's a bit of a mess. They don't really land and there's not actually that much bloody action, to be honest, for what is a superhero film. No. There's a lot of talking. Yes, it's a two and a half hour, 200 million dollar movie with only five or six action sequences spaced out across its running time and I'm not saying that a movie has to be filled to the brim with action I don't mind characters talking but at the same time the action sequences when they do arrive are embarrassingly bad did it for you as it did for me feel like everyone was worse than the last yes good wasn't just me I don't think <laughs> I've actually seen that in a comic book movie since the first Guillermo del Toro Hellboy <laughs> 
Yeah, bloody hell. Because the end sequence with Cheetah is awful. They're just kind of flying about and swinging and there's some clawing and that's kind of it. It's completely weightless, murky. Then it culminates in them fighting underwater and it looks so bad because it's at night. Why have you staged this in a way where you can't see it? There's no sense of scale. It feels like it's just sort of arbitrary because there's a ticking clock that stops while they're fighting, essentially. It's over with so quickly as well, considering it's meant to be the big fight of the movie. Wonder Woman was praised for having the No Man's Land sequence, which was genuinely quite iconic and stirring, but also the way the action sequences were staged, they had genuine heft about them. They used the speed ramping in a way that suggested Diana's power very effectively. They used a lot of continuous motion and takes, and you'd watch this and you go, what the hell happened? Why is the action so awkwardly staged. The one that really stood out to me as being especially awkward was the car chase in Egypt, which many people have already mocked the shot of Diana running towards the camera, which is obviously just someone sprinting in front of a green screen. (laughs) That was not the most impressive action sequence I've seen in a superhero film. And that is the biggest underestimate you will ever hear. That car chase, I couldn't follow what was going on in it because the way it was awkwardly cut and staged. (laughs) My main memory of that was right near the end of the sequence, I suddenly realised that there were about three times as many cars as I thought there were. Which is always a good thing to think of in a car chase. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's loads more. What, did we see them? Did we? Oh, it's over now. The spatial geography of the action scenes is completely messed up. There's no way of establishing where things are actually happening in relation to each other. There's too much going on half the time. They all feel weirdly overcrowded and undercooked. But the White House sequence, which again, Donadette, Superman 2, that sequence is really awkward in so many different ways. The bit where Diane deflects the bullet off her wrist and stops Max with the vase looks genuinely like an outtake. Like it looks like a rehearsal. (laughs) (laughs) The speed ramping is not used effectively at all. Instead, it just looks like it's thrown in willy-nilly and not really suggesting Diana's power properly. And it just looks awkward in the middle of this fight scene which just has people kind of throwing themselves around. What happens in the White House, there's loads of things going on simultaneously, but not in a coherent fashion, especially once Barbara throws herself into the mix and does a WWE heel turn. Oh yeah, by which stage Wonder Woman's powers are seriously starting to flag, and Barbara is as powerful as ever, so she just completely kicks Wonder Woman's ass, basically. But there's no storytelling in the fight scenes. Wonder Woman's action sequences told stories within them, and a good fight scene should have an internal sense of storytelling about it. Instead, it's just sort of all over the place. The only thing I will say is that I kind of liked the fact that the climax was not a big fight scene. The final confrontation with Max is actually just more talking him down. That feels, again, more like it's in the Wonder Woman ethos. It kind of goes back to the idea that, you know, some people can be redeemed, that there should be this positive outlook on the world. So I like the fact that it didn't end with a big fight scene. And I will say, uh, Alison Pregler, movie nights. She was very thankful that this movie didn't have a big glowy hole in the sky, which... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> 
That's the only thing it was missing. They had a little glowy platform in a room. That's completely different. So much of this movie is weirdly, almost indifferently staged and directed. I couldn't actually believe that Patty Jenkins was this sloppy this time out. It's very strange. Even the way that dialogue scenes are handled, the way that characters are spaced within them, but especially as a directorial issue, the pacing! Good God, the pacing! It's a long film with a lot of talking and the talking doesn't even bloody explain what's going on. Then it'll suddenly ramp up into, of course, your high-energy action film and then suddenly you're back down to just slowly travelling and chatting and... I can't remember most of the film and I watched it two days ago was taking very close attention because I knew we were doing a podcast on it and I was making notes that's not a good (laughs) sign is it the pacing is so lumbering in the middle it just almost completely flat lines (laughs) the Egypt section just kills the movie stone dead like the plot lines so many of them just stop in the middle of the movie what is wrong with this structure why did you choose to do it this way and then we get to the moral of the movie which is surprisingly bleak Yeah, I mean, that's an odd thing. So, I mean, the setup at the end feels so weirdly unsatisfying as well, because you've managed to convince Max Lord to stop being a big shit because of his son and stuff, so he does. But by this time, everybody in the world has had a wish, pretty much. And all because of the negative consequences, but also because of the wishes potentially being negative in and of themselves, everything is going to shit. There's literally an imminent nuclear war, like the bloody thermonuclear missiles are in the air, flying over and about to hit. Um, some old guy's been given a farm he can't take care of. There's an interesting <laughs> plot point for you. There's a bizarre sequence <laughs> where a character out of EastEnders and an Irishman... <laughs> I, I knew you were going to mention this. I was about to. This, is, this was amazing. <laughs> the Irishman wishes her dead and she promptly collapses, but not before she wishes all the Irish people were rounded up and go back to where they came from, which again, oh my God, real subtle commentary there. <laughs> and then he turns around and sees Irish people literally being rounded up in the streets. Like, oh, what? What? <laughs> it's amazing. Because, I mean, if you said to me, oh, there's a new Wonder Woman film and there's going to be Magic Stone at the Grounds Wishes. If you gave me a list of a million potential wishes that could be made in this film, I did not think send all the Irish back out of England would be one of the wishes made in it. Like, what the fuck? Genuinely bonkers. Like, what on earth? Uh, it isn't just ham-fisted, it's like each hand has been shoved into giant bloody boiled gammon. I've never heard <laughs> it. feels like a scene out of some like bizarre comedy sketch. Is it? Yes! Amanda Iannucci presents Wonder Woman. Actually, I would pay good money for that, but... Um, oh, it was... <laughs> Oh, so fucking strange. So, obviously, the movie's doing a monkey's paw storyline. And obviously, the message of those is be careful what you wish for. Fine message. Wonder Woman 1984 appears to extrapolate that into wishing for anything ever is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Aspiring to anything is bad. (laughs) Any form of aspirational thinking is terrible. Don't do it. You will be destroyed. Yes. Or the only other potential moral you could get out of it would be if if you're overly greedy, nothing will make sense. But I don't think that's actually an intention of the film. That's just how the plot goes along. You know? It's like, I kind of thematically understand what they're trying to go for. It's like, oh, greed is destroying the world, which, okay, fine. The way that it's implemented on a story level is that it's all these people making wishes, and apparently no one is altruistic. No one has any positive wishes. People aren't making wishes that cancel out other bad wishes. Nothing like that's happening. Everyone's terrible. Everyone 
everyone's wishing purely for their own selfish gains, and as such, the world is going to end imminently. It's proper wrecked, the world at the end. Within a matter of days. Also, now that we've established everyone is terrible and nobody's making good wishes, it turns out absolutely 100% to a man, woman and child renounce all their wishes when necessary immediately. Yes. And that apparently fixes everything, despite the fact it hasn't fixed everything because the world still looks like something from bloody Fallout 4. You know, it's still <laughs> completely smashed up. Everything's not going to go back to normal. Everything's ruined. This message is so wrong. Like, it's not a Wonder Woman message. Wonder Woman is meant to be a sunny, optimistic character. And this feels like, ironically, the message that you would see in a Zack Snyder DC movie. (laughs) They've accidentally snided themselves. It is genuinely bewildering to say that the Dark Knight has a sunnier view of humanity than a Wonder Woman movie. Like the bit with the ferry ships. Yeah. That was a more positive outcome and view on humanity than what's presented in the climax of this movie. People shouldn't have anything because people are terrible. It's more like a moral at the end of episode of Black Mirror or something, not Wonder Woman, you know. There is something a bit Black Mirror-esque about the whole setup of him being on every TV screen in the world, including in the middle of London, which definitely weren't electronic screens at that point. Uh, Yes. I I also know this is a ridiculously nerdy thing to spot, but at one stage where he's taken over the televisions and they're all glitching slightly because of the signal whatever, they show a digital glitch and not an analogue glitch, which would have been static. That kind of tiny thing just annoys me for no reason, but that's me being very nerdy because obviously weren't a whole lot of digital screens around in 1984. Well, you know, details, details. (laughs) Digital signals would be more relevant, wouldn't it? But yeah, oh my God. And I don't think we're misinterpreting that message either. No. Were they trying to say something else and it just got so sort of lost up in how ham-fisted the whole thing is? I don't know. Wonder Woman literally turns towards the camera and says it. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So she's addressing the audience, but she's also addressing us as the audience. Did you notice that? The way that she turns from Max to the audience watching? You almost literally have Gal Gadot looking down the bow of the lens as she delivers those lines. Again, it's the subtlety I enjoyed. (laughs) And it's a speech all about, you know, truth and how the truth is beautiful. And, you know, it's obviously meant to be a response to, you know, things like fake news and things like that, which conceptually, fine. Delivered in this manner? No! (laughs) She says, oh, the world is beautiful, the world is great, and you go, well, yeah, it's great for some people, but that's not how the world works. It's a strangely kind of naive way of thinking. Yes, the world is beautiful in some respects, but there's also genuine hardship and oppression. You know, the 80s were quite bad in a lot of respects, because, you know, HIV, Cold War, numerous other things. (laughs) And also, she says this, but the world is a beautiful place, when most of it's just been smashed up and not repaired. (laughs) The world is in a complete mess, physically, at the end of the film, but apparently that's fine. Diana's speech at the end of the film is meant to be an inspiring, uplifting message, and it feels like a misguided Twitter thread. (laughs) (laughs) Which again takes us back to the Cairo sequence, but let's not uh, dwell on that. Oh my god. Also, one final note. Can I say that not wishing for things to be better is also a terrible message to send out in this present moment, right now. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I know, obviously, the filmmakers didn't have a crystal ball and knew that their film was going to be released in this specific moment, but I feel like this is the worst possible time for this message in any recent point in human history. (laughs) It really is, isn't it? (laughs) 
yeah, I mean, I mean, I appreciate that's accidental, but it's still not a good message at any time, is it? it? Really isn't. Oh, and the bloody cameo at the end. Oh yeah, we didn't mention Linda Carter at the end of it. Yeah, that was at least one minor bright light in that ending. That felt very ham-fisted to me as well, to be honest. I was quite excited to see. Oh, that's quite a nice idea, etc. But it's so kind of on the nose, and I don't know. Maybe I was just annoyed from the rest of the film. To be fair, it didn't quite land for me. You reach a level of terminal annoyance. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Even Linda Carter couldn't bring me round. That's how bad it was. <laughs> so, how would you rank this among the DC movies? <laughs> I'm not sure I've seen all the DC movies. I haven't seen Aquaman, because I'd just totally tuned out of the whole DC thing by then after watching Bloody Justice League. Well, even that wasn't as bad as Batman vs. Superman, but I mean... Uh, well, I can't comment on Aquaman, having not seen it, but um, this, for me, goes in definitely, obviously, below the first Wonder Woman. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely above Suicide Squad and Batman vs. Superman. Do you know, I think it goes in below Man of Steel, and I really didn't like Man of Steel. This is just making me think how bad most of these DC films have been, actually. <laughs> I mean, Birds of Prey is above that, and then... Uh, where would you rank it? I would definitely rank it on the low end. If we're holding sort of Wonder Woman, the first one, and Shazam as being the sort of high benchmarks... Yes, I would agree with that. Yep, yep. I would put Birds of Prey after that. Yep begrudgingly I'd probably put Joker there after that. Yeah? I don't know, Joker in this, I'm kind of umming and ahhing, but at least Joker is more successful in what it's trying to do, and more people seem to like it. (laughs) I would probably put this below Joker, but above Man of Steel and the rest. I'm thinking I would probably have this below Man of Steel, and as I say, I really didn't like Man of Steel, but at least it's coherent in its storytelling mostly, or at least less incoherent than this. Yeah. Mind you, there wasn't anything I particularly liked Man of Steel and I did like some parts of it I mean you know as we said the intro or the early fight and that kind of stuff so it's hard really isn't it especially because I was thinking going in it's like surely this is one of the better ones isn't it I mean it's you know it's guff but it's, it's, and then you start thinking of what the other ones are like you're like oh oh dear it's a body of work these DC films isn't it it really is you know what Wonder Woman 1984 is the movie we were afraid we were going to get when Wonder Woman arrived yes that's exactly right that's the tagline for the review print said it to print that's perfect my god I mean it's interesting seeing the response to this film and the way that it's played out especially because obviously most of us in the UK have had to wait to see it and so seeing it from a distance has been very strange because the initial reviews for this movie were very positive what? I I think it was fresh on Rotten Tomatoes like certified fresh somewhere in the 80s and 90s and then reviews started coming out around the time it came out on HBO Max and they started to get a bit more negative and now it's actually rotten it's about 57% last time I looked bloody hell and the consensus I was trying to work out what the consensus was because it was all over the map like some people I was seeing really rave about it and then I was seeing other reviews going this has loads and loads of problems and issues and oh my god how did it go so badly and I go I don't know what to think anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah looking at it right at this second it's 60% oh it's just managed to claw its way back into being fresh that is literally the minimum for fresh isn't it yeah and I think that's being generous I mean I can understand why those initial reviews were so positive frankly after the year we've had we were looking forward to this movie we were like okay there's got to be one big budget blockbuster after stink burgers like Asmus Fowl and Mulan that might actually be worth waiting for and then it's just completely led a 
Dawson and dead on arrival. What I will say, I have learned to be very cynical of initial reviews because initial reviews can always be a little bit swayed. Now, I'm not saying this to play into stupid DC Marvel tribalism. Oh, Rotten Tomatoes has paid off and things like that. No, that's stupid. What I'm saying is when people see a movie early, they see it with a completely different mindset because they're seeing it first, so they're excited and they're obviously going to be a lot more forgiving in that circumstance. There's also a reason why a lot of early screenings of movies, they do that at sort of fan events Mm. so they can get fans on Twitter to rave about the movie who, again, are excited because they're getting to see something early. I'm reminded of how the early reviews of Pirates of the Caribbean 5 were super positive because the first time anyone had seen that movie was at a Pirates of the Caribbean fan event. Ah... I didn't know that. So that's the sort of tricks they use on sort of Twitter and that. And I'm not saying that those people didn't enjoy the movie because they did, but they're viewing it with a different mindset. So normally the more sober takes do take longer to come in. People have to bear that in mind. They have to always kind of just take those initial reactions with a pinch of salt because a lot of people just aren't looking at it with the kind of critical mindset. They're looking at it with a sort of, we're excited to be here. And that changes the way that you're viewing things. That being said, though, I've watched things that I've been excited for and then been completely deflated by them (laughs) this being one of them the fan event is an attempt to manipulate people by making them feel like oh you're part of it now so you've got to like oh look and you're special and look oh look how much the the film loves you by bringing you here and all this kind of stuff it's very much a very focused marketing thing they've discovered they can do which dc has also literally done because they broke off and did their own comic-con thing with the fandom it's been interesting to finally get around to watching this movie for myself and making up my own opinion of which is it's a profound disappointment it was interesting for me going in because I had no idea what to expect I hadn't actually read reviews or opinion pieces or anything about it I genuinely didn't know if it was good or not afterwards obviously I had a quick look around and discovered you know things like Patty Jenkins defense of the uh, body swap in inverted commas it's not a body swap if there's only one body it's fine it was in big I'm like have you watched big recently there's a similarly iffy sex scene in that (laughs) no in big he doesn't take over somebody else's body does he yeah he doesn't take over someone else's body but she still has sex with him even though he's a boy in a grown-up body which is kind of messed up in its own oh way my God. i haven't seen that for like 35 years or something i, I mm. it's a detail that most people have forgotten and then are shocked when they rewatch it <laughs> yeah that would certainly have happened but like a lot of things in 80s movies the defense of oh it happened in an 80s movie not actually a defense because you should make them better <laughs> It reminds me of when I went back and hadn't seen Overboard since I was sort of really young. You go back now and you're like, oh, this has issues, doesn't it? (laughs) In the very fucking set-up plot and playing out of it. My God. Oh, dear. Yes. Because I didn't think about that when I was 11 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, society moves, but you've got to move along with it. As I keep saying, there are things in Wonder Woman 1984 I can respect, or at least in terms of attempt and ambition, but boy, the execution here is bad on so many different levels. What a real shame. Some nice bits, but overall a sort of overly long, confusing slog, really. Yeah. Why does this happen with superhero films? They're supposed to be mostly aimed at a young audience, and yet they can end up so convoluted and odd. I don't know. Keep it simple. Keep it under two hours. (laughs) Keep it focused. Don't have two villains for no reason. Don't bring in characters that don't go anywhere. Don't go to Cairo. At least for the love of criminy, can we not make these things two and a half hours long so if they are bad they don't feel like an insurance test <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> I mean, there must be ones out there which are almost as long as, like, The Godfather or something. <laughs> Saying that, though, Zack Snyder said that his Justice League is four hours oh, long. Oh, no. We want the Snyder Cut. It doesn't exist. We want the Snyder Cut. It doesn't exist. We want the Snyder Fine, we'll make a Snyder Cut. It's going to last five years. It's going to be relentlessly terrible, and that'll teach you. Zack Snyder's Justice League is primarily aimed at people who like bashing their testicles with a hammer. <laughs> And you can put that on the Blu-ray case. Oh, my God. They've got to stop listening to just overly obsessive, incredibly loud, and not actually that numerous online fan bases over there. Maybe they should try listening to the right people, because obviously Justice League is a case of listening to maybe too many of the wrong people, and Wonder Woman 1984 appears to have been a case of not actually listening to anyone properly. (laughs) (laughs) Send your scripts for notes, guys. Come on. There's always somebody who'll help. Just before we go, I will ask you, because you will know, how is this film done? Do we know? It's difficult with the HBO Max thing, because obviously with any digital platform no one actually announces their bloody numbers most of the time unless they're really really pleased with them this kind of goes into a larger debate with the HBO Max thing in that all the people going oh well it's the death of cinema and I go no it's not because otherwise these huge 200 million dollar tent poles aren't going to pay for themselves there's a reason why they don't release them on streaming simultaneously usually it's because they don't make their money back otherwise and are going to be rampantly pirated at last total when I was recording this I believe it has managed to make 147 million at the box office just about 35 million of that is actually from the US which considering how completely flatlined their theatrical industry is at the moment I guess that's a win I wouldn't say that this would be anywhere close to breaking even for quite some time but Warner Brothers probably knew that when they made it HBO Max I mostly see the HBO Max thing as Warner Brothers taking a big old bath for AT&T's expense I think that's a fairly safe presumption really i'm assuming that given that it's a comic book movie and people will continue to watch comic book movies it will eventually break even but it will take a while especially considering this i don't think anyone's going to be in any real rush to rewatch it <laughs> oh i am I'm, I'm, I'm now queuing it up just so i can miss all the exciting details that i missed before that aren't actually in the film hang on <laughs> so Stuart, where can people find you merely google ashens a-s-h-e-n-s one word like Madonna. You can find me on YouTube at Filmbrain. You can just simply go to www.youtube.com slash C slash Filmbrain and it will take you right there. The podcast can be found on all the good podcasty outfits. I am on Twitter, FB underscore BMB. I am now on Instagram for whatever reason at FilmbrainBMB. Same handle for Tumblr as well. Uh, I'm also on Facebook at Filmbrain Reviews. Oh, don't forget, I also now have a Kofi page as well. I'm here all the social media ones ko-fi.com slash filmbrain or patreon.com slash filmbrain if you like the old traditional patreon method as well i think that about covers it yeah that'll do us until wonder woman i don't know what the next one's going to be 2003 that's my prediction for the next iconic year she will travel to 2003 better than wonder woman 2001 let's not have that Thank you, Stu, for joining me, and I will just wish everyone listening well. Stay safe. I'm Matthew Buck, fading out. Thank you for listening to the Film Brain Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that if you want to support my work, be it podcasts or YouTube videos, please go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash filmbrain, where you can experience those episodes early, among other perks. And just a quick shout-out to my Patreons, Tim Poppleton, G Viral, Henry Jacob, Jonah Gustafson, Harry Baker, Vincent Chiang... 
Ina Civic, Jake McNulty, Colin M. Cherry, Tom Oliver Maddox. Oh, and a big shout out to the team at Cast, which is the website that I use to record my podcast. I actually had a bit of a technical snafu during this episode, and they really went above and beyond the call of duty to help me out. So big shout out to them. If you want to try them, they're at tryca.st. And remember, if you have any feedback about the show over social media, please use the hashtag FilmBrainPodcast.